You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast is not suitable for children and contains themes that some listeners may find upsetting. Participants' names have been changed to protect their identities. From Justice, Stories of Survival, with Edwina Grosvenor. We have to understand trauma because we have to understand that feelings come from that trauma and then behaviours come from those feelings. We have to change the question from what's wrong with her to what's happened to her. It is our job, I believe, in the prison system and really as humans in general to provide those safe spaces to allow people to tell their stories. I have seen women who have just, if nothing else, they've just told their story and it's changed them unbelievably. Four women, four stories, four tales of trauma from outside and inside prison. I used to uh, carry a weapon because I was always so frightened. And um, what and whom? I don't know. Half the time, I don't know. I've spent a lot of my life uh, frightened. I got into a few fights. I ended up down the block about five times. The block being the segregation, the segregation. unit, so isolated from yeah. other inmates. Yeah. What well, did um, isolation and being on the segregation unit do for you and your mental health? Oh, that's that's when I proper lost it. I proper lost it down there. This week, Tina's story. where I felt like the kind of start of a pivotal turn in my life's experience was when my mum got ill with cancer. And at first, I kind of knew that something was going on in the house. How old were you at the time? I was about 11. But in the run-up to that, I knew that stuff was going on. We wasn't a very emotionally articulate family. So I kind of grew antennae about what was going on, what was not going on uh, when I was very young. You know, some of my memories, early memories are very sketchy. But I remember grabbing my younger sister one time and uh, leaving a note for my mom and getting her down the bus stop Uh, we lived in Lambeth at the time and I got down to old South Lambeth Road and I didn't know what else to do but I can't remember why I was running away and bringing my sister but I can't really remember why and then I'm having this terrible panic thinking I've got to get back to the house before my mom gets home because she'll be upset but what happened the violence in the home was it something Um, to do with the violence situation or were your parents using no my my they didn't my dad was probably 
probably would call him from a bit of a binge drinker. They wasn't drinking all the time. They worked really hard. My my dad was out, um, you know, till the evening. He was a painter and decorator. My mum, she did kind of like a cleaning or administrative uh, jobs and like I remember them having quite a strong work ethic but um, my dad used to get really angry so sometimes I'd be a bit scared of my my dad's anger and just kind of like what the mood might be in the house which is probably why I, I grew what I call it my antennae and if I even today if I walk into a room somebody in that room's angry I know the minute I walk in the room I know I've got real sensitivity to it because it used to frighten me and uh, so I knew stuff was going on but I didn't know what and then as my mum got sicker and she was going out of the hospital obviously we all knew and um, you know and I remember you know my mum um having like chemotherapy she lost her hair and I remember showing me like when she'd been to radiation uh, therapy and she uh the iodine and I was okay up until I was around 14 and then I started acting out at school and when I first started at secondary school I got bullied uh, and there was a little gang of three and then I saw them one day and there was outside, there was an out, ice cream van outside the school. And I remember just feeling this rage because they were laughing and they seemed really happy and I felt really unhappy. And I just ran up to the one that I perceived as a ringleader just as she was taking a lick of ice cream. And I just smacked her in the face and everyone started laughing. But I felt, felt this sense of power, if you like. Somewhere inside of me, I thought, it was a kind of like a good way of dealing with things because I felt more power than I had previously where I felt disempowered. But anyway, as my mum got uh, sicker and sicker, I, I was doing a lot of acting at, at school. And when I went, was due to take my O-level and CSEs, I had been expelled from school because I got into uh, fighting. I got expelled on my very last day from school for fighting. I had this massive brawl up at the elephant and castle and it was after school hours but um, they got to hear about it at the school and I basically got expelled and uh, my mum was in uh, the Royal Marsden Hospital and she was really really sick then she had to like plead with the headmaster to let me back to go and do my exams but I only went back to do a few and I didn't really do anything with it I just couldn't cope with what was you know what was going on and like you know feelings of uh feeling very powerless it's a very difficult feeling to manage so I felt very powerless I was out one night at a venue in London and uh uh, the next morning when I got home because at this point I wasn't living at home I left I left home it was difficult with my dad he wasn't getting on too good and I'd left home to live with my best friend's family and uh, the phone was ringing when we got in in the morning and it was my dad going your mother's died you know and you're out partying and like and I felt really bad and felt really guilty how old were you when she died I was just 17 and I went completely off the rails and I don't know why all through my from as soon as I could work I've always worked I don't know why but I've always had this thing I've got to work 
Probably because your parents had a strong work ethic. Probably. So there were some positives yeah, that came out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, parts of my life, absolute, the structure, have, holding a structure of work really saved me. But what I started doing, and I wasn't using or anything at the time, mm. you know, I, I would smoke cannabis and stuff like that. I'd have a spliff. But I wasn't addicted or anything like that. But I got into doing like street muggings and stuff. And I just felt so angry with everybody. When you say street muggings, can you explain oh, to those of us who aren't yeah, so, aware of actually what that means? Yeah. What it meant for you? So it's always, I grew up, my dad had this thing, right? And he always used to say to us, and it's still etched in my head, although I challenge it and I've challenged it for some time. Um, he always used to go... There's the haves and the have-nots, and we're the have-nots, that's what he used to say. So that was kind of instilled. So it always felt like we were one down. He'd had a difficult time. He was an Irish guy, and he would tell me stories about uh, coming over to England and having a really hard time, not being able to get accommodation, and some of the prejudice towards the Irish. So he'd formulated this kind of stance, if you like. And to some degree, I inherited, and I'd see people like happy getting on with their lives and I just feel so angry with them and I couldn't I didn't cope with it very well so if I you know and I'd see you know people working and stuff like that and I feel really ashamed about what I used to do when I was a teenager and the fact that I used to see like a woman walking down the street with her handbag and I just just run along and whip it out of her hands and run off and then you know take the money I'd give the money away I didn't you know, a lot you didn't of the, use the money for no, only for food and addiction, stuff. No, drugs. Not, not at alcohol. that point. No, no, not at that point at all. So and who would you give it away to? Just people, like giving it, being a bit large. I've got a bit dodged. Do you know what I mean? Should we go and do this? Like go and do it. Yeah, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? And um, you know, I'd, I'd buy weed. I was buying buying weed, um, but I, I wasn't addicted at that stage. It was all about. It was all a bit of an image. It made me feel bigger or better or something like that. How and many times a day might you mug someone? Um, it wasn't all the time. I'd like do it, I don't know, once every couple of weeks. And I would do it with a woman, uh, well, a girl at the time that I'd been to school with. But it kind of got out of hand because she was kind of, I suppose, more distressed than me. And uh, there was one particular incident when she was quite violent. And um, it kind of frightened me and I thought, I can't go out with her, do you know what I mean? I can't go out with her doing that. But anyway, I got arrested uh, for one of these street robberies. I got chased by some bloke saw me do it and he chased me down and uh, he caught hold of me and uh, somebody called the police and anyway, I got arrested. And I'd done a couple of other things before. It was all about trying to bring in a bit of money and I got charged with theft from person. But what happened was I ended up being put into a probation hostel in North London. So I've lived all my life in South London. I get put in this probation hostel in North London. But what kind of happened when my mum died, it felt like me and my family all split apart. And it really kind of, because like my mum was like the glue. And we all kind of split apart. And what happened was... One of my family members, she was taking heroin. Right? So I'm in this probation hostel. I don't know anyone. I think I'm 18. Cause I, 
a lot of my memories are so quite it's a year sketchy. After your mum died. Yeah, it's about a year after my yes, yeah, about a year after my mum died. So I'm in this probation hostel, and so I'm not in my area. I'm put up into the, and I had a ban of going south of the river. Like I couldn't go uh, back to where I was doing these robberies. Put in place by the courts. Yeah. So like yeah. a geographical kind yeah. of so, curfew. Yeah. So I had um, a condition of residence and 12 months probation. But it was then that I started, I was, people were smoking in there, so I started puffing. Somebody gave me some pills, so I started taking pills, tunnel. Started, so I was taking barbiturates. There was a couple of us in there, get out of our heads. But anyway, I found this, uh, came across this family member who was taking heroin. And the first time I had heroin, it was just like this amazing experience. I took this heroin, I was sick. It's a bit of an act of perseverance, I was sick. But um, how I felt, I'll never forget it. I felt like I didn't have any problems, I didn't feel like anything mattered. It's like a, a warm blanket of untouchableness that kind of covers you. And that was it. I just thought, right, that's it. I just wanted to keep feeling like that. So the drugs were introduced to you at the probation hostel? I got tunnel there. Uh, so probation hostel, for, for anyone who's listening, should be a place of safety where yeah. people go to um, reform and learn how to behave themselves. That so not, that was not your experience? That was not a place of safety. I was no. very unsafe in there. It was really scary in there. I was terrified in there. I got into a row with this bloke and he was in, like, so we had these little rooms. I thought he was kind of like a friend, but he wasn't. Uh, but anyway, I can't remember how we ended up in this argument. He basically tried to kill me in this room. And he, I, I always remember he was sitting on my chest, strangling me. And I could feel myself going. And I had a speaker, because I was into my music, and I had a speaker... And I had this little metal tweeter on top of the speaker. And it was lucky I could reach it because I just kept smacking him around the side of the head with this metal tweeter to get off me. Just terrifying in there, do you know what I mean? And then, like, but you couldn't, I couldn't go elsewhere because then I was in breach because I had a conditional residence, do you know what I mean? So mm. I'm terrified of this bloke. How uh, long did you spend in that hostel? But it was, I was there a year. And also there was a, a woman in there who was a sex worker and she used to uh, work round at King's Cross. And I got into kind of looking after her because she was in such a state and she got murdered. But when I left the probation hostel, I was put into, by the council, I was put into this two-bed temporary flat. And the woman, the woman that I was put in this flat with, her husband was a heroin dealer you can write this stuff right and then from there I got like this little uh, little bedsit flat but what was really weird or I think looking back is that I always had a job apart once I was out of the probation hostel I got myself a, a job I got uh, I did a year's course with uh, CSV I'd keep my job and Jews every day so you describe it as a sort of chaotic period <laughs> yeah. of your life, I imagine. It was mad. When I left the probation hostel and I was 19, my dad died. And that was something that I really struggled with because I used to go and meet my dad kind of halfway and we'd meet most Sundays. 
and when I got my flat after I'd moved out of this temporary accommodation, I got this flat. It was uh, in the run up to Christmas, and it was really, really cold. And I was meant to meet my dad at the tube station to bring it back to the flat, but I had to go and score first. So I went off to score, and I was late to the tube station. And uh, what happened was he got ill, and when I went down to the hospital to see him, he like was saying, "Oh, it's your fault. You left me at the tube uh, station." And we ended up having an argument, and that was the last time I spoke to him. So it was really hard. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, when I left, I was quite abusive, and I said, "Do you know what I mean?" And walked out. And that was kind of like the worst, last thing I ever said to him. So it always really haunted me. Do you know what I mean? That I didn't have a proper ending with my mum, and I didn't have a proper ending with my dad. Do you know what I mean? So that always kind of stayed with me, still does. And again, all that did for me was like, it's, it's just the distress of it. Do you know what I mean? So I just use, 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 work, use, work, use. And I still don't know how I managed to hold down a, a job. I was all about knock me out. That's that's what I was all about. Mm. Nothing else, you know. I've tried everything, you know, sulfur, you know, amphetamine, cocaine. But I was all about have something and just sit quietly in the corner in oblivion. And that's that's when I was at my happiness. I do. And you wouldn't have to steal to get your money for the drugs because you had employment, right? Yeah. So how long did it take then? Because you ended up serving a custodial sentence. Yeah. So what then led to the spiral that landed you up in, right. in the courts? I managed to get myself into a, a treatment centre. And I worked, uh, I used to work night shifts because I, I wouldn't have been able to keep it together to get there early. But if I did a night shift, there was a good chance I'd turn up. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that worked really well for me. And I worked the night shift for years. But what I used to do, I used to do my shift at work and I would get go to the tube station, get on the circle line and just sit up against the the tube thing and just and go to sleep. Go round and round and round in the circle line and when I'd wake up I'd get the tube up to go and score. I'd always turn up for work in an ironed uniform because I didn't want people to know what I was doing. So I was you know, I was working, I was homeless and I was a heroin addict. It was just crazy. And I've heard from other people that being on the circle line it's safe as a female, right? In, to a certain extent, if you're sleeping there, there's other people who are around, yeah, so you're not likely to come up against yeah. maybe some of the problems that you might if you were sleeping on the street. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I did that for nearly a year. And then I went and stayed with my, one of my sisters. And if you're a heroin addict, when you wake up, you're sick. Because when I started taking heroin, and it was just that amazing, warm take everything away that was it like from my experience of using heroin that was I I experienced it that time and you're chasing that same feeling you never feel it exactly the same again and actually what heroin addiction becomes where what it became for me was always staving up off the sickness do you know what I mean the sickness that you feel when you're not taking is that right yeah so like when I was for example when I was staying at my sister's I was to wake up and she had this uh, faux leather couch and that's what I slept on. And I would literally have to peel myself up because I'd wake up 
soaked in sweat and like literally all my skin was stuck and I'd have to try and get ready and then get over to the other side of London go and score go to work and that was it you know so every day was like ill sort yourself out feel well go to work and that was my life for years I mean it was just crazy From Justice, you're listening to Stories of Survival with Edwina Grosvenor. Tales of trauma from outside and inside prison. Today, we're hearing Tina's story. How I ended up in prison was, bearing in mind I'm working the night shift, one time I tripped for about a week, was taking LSD, trying to stop taking heroin, on this occasion, I took a load of barbiturates and was drinking because I thought i just got to get the other side of the cluck, the other side of the withdrawal. But whilst I was in that state, I committed a crime. I, you know, I was just completely out of my head. And then when I came round, I was in the middle of this offence. And uh, basically, I'd uh, got into a tax. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And uh, threatened the driver to drive me back to London, and I had a weapon, and I'd always carried a weapon with me, and it's not, you know, it's not okay. Today I know that stats are you more likely to get attacked if you carry a weapon, but um, be- I used to uh, carry a weapon because I was always so frightened. And um, frightened of what and whom? I don't know. Half the time I don't know. I've spent a lot of my life frightened for whatever reason, because of the lifestyle I led, people trying finding out, sometimes going to school if I couldn't go and school in my usual place. You know, you you put yourself in very mm. dangerous situations. Mm. You know, you don't know who the characters are. You know, and I came round committing this offence, and I thought, oh my god, this bloke's going to kill me. He's he's literally going to kill me, and I didn't know what to do. And in my head, I thought, I just got to keep it going. And sometimes I used to think like I was living in some sort of film. 
so you say you came round. Were you what's called disassociated, or were you intoxicated? Were you in the middle of sort of you know taking heroin? What do you mean you came uh, round? Well, what happened was I wasn't taking heroin at the time, but what because I, I was trying not to take heroin, I was taking loads of barbiturates, and that evening I'd been drinking and I was uh, pretty off my face, and I got in a cab to go home and then I came round when we was on the motorway and I was like I told this you know this poor cab driver you know drive me drive me home drive me back to London so I was essentially in a blackout I guess and then came round came out of that thinking I, I, I didn't know what to do and basically we stopped uh, I got the guy to stop at a service station because I wanted to have a cigarette and have a think about because I didn't know what to do and the cashier knew that something was was untoward and anyway the police pulled us over on the motorway and I was really relieved because it just it made it stop I didn't want to be doing what I was doing but I didn't know how to stop uh, I didn't know how to access help even the concept of help seemed like an alien thing but anyway I, for that offence I ended up getting two years and two years in prison yeah two years yeah. in prison when I went into the prison, I had a really hard time. Um, you had a hard time because of the crime you committed yeah. and because of what, the moral because hierarchy of, of the other people in the prison or because of the staff judging you the, on your crime? Well, there was no context. What When I went into the prison, what I am assuming now that had happened is that I think they must have been told I'd been charged with kidnap. So they must have thought maybe it was a child. So these right. women... That's the only sense I can make of it. Give me a really hard time. And again, I did what I did when I was a kid. Like bearing in mind by this point, I, I think I'm 29. So I've got these group of women giving me a hard time. And went to the gym. I was on remand at this point. Went to the gym and I thought, I've got to fight them. So I ran across the gym and just flew at this woman and got into a fight with, with this woman. And then it stopped again. So a bit like the situation yeah. with the girl at the ice cream van. Yeah, it's a complete repeat of that. Mm. But again, it's a really bad lesson. Because like, what I learned, again, was if I give it the large and like, be uh, angry and aggressive, that I'm kind of all right. And that's how I got through prison. Oh, and I had a really horrible experience when I was on remand. Because you're very lucky if you survive addiction with your teeth intact. Mm. And I had really bad toothache and they took us uh, from the remand centre to Bristol Prison uh, because there was a dentist there. And um, when they were trying to take out, they whip them out. But my roots were like hooked and uh, they had to slip my gum and pull my teeth out. But when I got back... Yeah, but when I got back to the remand centre, like I'd, I'd miss tea, you know... And uh, they just locked me in the cell. And I just bled all night. And when I woke up, I was just, like, covered in blood. And once I was convicted, I remember... And I wasn't in a sweat box. I was in, like, it was a minibus. And there was me and another woman. And they had to stop. And uh, I thought, I could do a runner. I'll just do a runner. Do you know what I mean? But then I thought, I've got nowhere to run to. I didn't know where to run to. I had no accommodation or anything. And go through the processing. I'll tell you, uh, when I was on remand, and then uh, in particularly in the remand centre, the 
reception process. It was really humiliating. You got to get undressed, get in a bath and all of this. It was so humiliating. And I remember walking down this corridor and there was a lot of women standing there and I felt really frightened. So what I do, you know, like I start walking a certain way and I remember this woman just came to me, are you from New York? And I went, now nah, I'm from London, you know, and like just bowling along like, like I was proper hard. Yeah. But that's what I used to do because that was my defence. Yeah. And I was in prison for 13 months I got an extra month when I left I I didn't want to leave but it's because I felt like it's really sad I didn't want to leave because I knew when I left I was going back to the same old same old but whilst I was in prison I made some friends I didn't have any friends outside I had associates and I felt like I made some genuine friends we felt genuine at the time and one of the main reasons why I didn't want to leave because although I'd get a bit of heroin intermittently it wasn't enough to have a habit and I was habit free for the first time for years and that felt really nice but in there I'd get myself into trouble again because of my way to defend against the world um, I, I got into a few fights. I ended up down the block about five times. And the block being the segregation, the segregation. unit, so isolated from yeah. other inmates. Yeah. What did isolation and being on the segregation unit do for you and your mental health? Oh, well, that's when I proper lost it. I proper lost it down there. And uh, they was really worried about me because I was on... I think it was like three days CC. So I was down there three days... And so CC was like clear cell and like you could have your mattress and stuff in the cell during uh, the night, obviously, to sleep on. But in the morning, they take everything out of the cell. I didn't even have anything to sit on, do you know what I mean? And you have a clear cell so that clear the cell. staff can yeah. watch you. Do you mean a clear door or do you no, mean nothing in your take, cell? They took everything out of okay, the cell. Okay, so nothing in your cell. Nothing in there. And, I, and like, I'll try and fit myself on the window ledge had no tobacco or anything down there and I completely lost the plot down there when they when they did that and when they bought me food I was like kicking off you know because I just absolutely did my head in I used to wake up under the bed a lot and it used to really freak me out so I'd go to bed on the bed and I'd wake up under the bed and it used to really freak me out and I hated like because I was on my own in the cell what I found out very quickly was that I really didn't like my own company and just that being on my own for that period of time, I found it absolutely torturous. Mm. I found that so hard and I couldn't bear the powerlessness. I couldn't bear that I couldn't eat when I wanted to eat. And some of the reasons why I found prison difficult and good, good because I was not using I didn't get any services in there. I asked, uh, I put in an app, can we have NA meetings in there? And I was told there's enough junkies in here. We're not, we're not allowing any more to come in. But some of the things I saw around women uh, self-harming was horrific. I saw a woman, I, you know, she'd managed to get matches in off a visitor or something, burning her eyelids with matches. I saw a woman uh, cut her throat, like... The distress has always stayed with me. I think about, even now, even now, I think about some of the women that I met in there. 
Um, they shouldn't have been in there. I met a woman in there who had been convicted of murder and she attacked back when she was being attacked, you know. And, and that's you how know. she ended up killing her husband. Yeah. And she yeah. was sentenced. Yeah, it's just it's just things like that. And a, a woman um, saving her her son had been abused by a neighbour, lived in a block of flats. And I remember watching when she came in, she looked, didn't look alright, and we was talking to her and she told us what had happened and you know, I remember some of the anger of the women, like you shouldn't be in here, you know. And she really lost her mental health, did a dirty protest, and like, and you know, she was protecting her child. Some things that women do, you can kind of understand it. Don't Absolutely. always excuse it. I mean, like, so what I did, there isn't no excuse, really. You know, I was acting out my anger on the world just because I was so mm. angry at losing my mom. When you came out of prison, yeah. how did you then? sort of decide there was a better yeah. path for you? It's, it's interesting because I, I always thought, I'm not meant to be here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, it was at the time because of what I did. Yeah. And quite and like, life but beyond. inside I was thinking, this can't, this can't be right. Do you know what I mean? This isn't right. And just watching, I'd, I'm, and I still am, terrible people watcher and try to imagine other people's lives. When I used to sit outside the Highbury and Islet and Tube Station when I lived in Islet, and I just used to sit there and watch people and just try and imagine what life was like for them and, you know, how could I get the life that I, I wanted, you know what I mean, which, which wasn't being a heroin addict, which wasn't committing offences, which was having stable housing and, you know, and all of those things. But prison was kind of a good thing because it gave me enough days where I was heroin-free to... To know that I wanted to be heroin free mm. uh, and it was a bad thing because I found it very distressing in there some of the things that I saw heard I found it really distressing you know I was only in prison for 13 months but I don't think it ever leaves you the experience I, I still remember my prison number I can't bear that I still remember it but I do and I've got this sense of life ever I feel trapped I can't bear it I can't bear feeling powerless I can't bear being in one place, you know, like if I had to do an office job and just be in the office, I go stir crazy. I feel trapped very easily. And I think that's uh, because of my experience in prison. But when I got out of prison, I was just like, I had a year where I was just very depressed, back out. You know, I, I was helped to get housing by a charity, which was amazing. They were just brilliant. They gave me a flat. They kitted it all out for me. And I got back into heroin, started using again, and I just felt so depressed and miserable. And what happened was there was like a drugs project in Islington. And I just went in there one day and I met this woman. I just felt really desperate, went in, this woman saw me. And from seeing that woman, three weeks later, I was in a treatment centre. And that what really struck me about that was... She just really heard me, believed enough in me to think, I want to help this person. And I, that's really important, you know, that was really important. I wrote to her when I got clean. I, I ended up in this treatment centre. I got clean and I just thought, I'm staying clean. I'm not going back to London. I gave up the flat because I thought, lock off the doorways back into that life. And, and did you feel that you couldn't be in London? London was London was yeah. almost a trigger for you. Yeah, for, don't yeah. go back. You have to go forward. You've got to look. If you're going to have something different in your life, you've got to look forward. All my instincts that I've been operating on over the years, when I was in treatment, 
anything that I felt, I had this little thing for myself, anything that I felt like doing, I thought, right, do the opposite. Because right. <laughs> I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust myself not to descend into the usual self-destructive behaviours that would lead me back into using. And um, I just stayed on this recovery trajectory of like you know listening to people going to meetings doing what they asked of me whilst I was in the treatment and then when they said where do you want to go there was two projects that would take me one in Brighton one in Bristol and I really wanted to go to Brighton so I thought go Bristol (laughs) (laughs) amazing that you had that sort of foresight to realize that so much of you was actually at that point probably about making the wrong decisions yeah yeah so you knew you had to yeah take the opposite path well I think a lot of what I did because I felt so bad about myself I felt you know I spent a lot of time really hating myself and I'd hate myself for experiences around my parents my parents death I blamed myself a lot I hated myself for some of the stuff that I'd done in life that I'd mentioned because it you know it's unacceptable and it felt alien to who I am and I think the stuff around identity is really important to me when I was a heroin addict I took on this particular persona when I was in prison everyone called me boots because I'd smoke uh, heroin and I hid in this persona it's almost like that's almost like a disassociation so I became this persona and what people expected me to be so when I cleaned up I felt like empty I felt like a nothing and it's that thing about trying to rebuild and facing some of my feelings my feelings of guilt my feelings of shame learning how to manage my anger was really crucial because I just felt so angry with everybody else because of my experiences and what I learned to do was to own my own experience own my own feelings and some of the stuff that I was taught in treatment was really important to me I think the main reparative experience for me um, when through NA actually I met a group of women we That's became narcotics friends anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and yeah. met these other women who were on the same thing as me they wanted their lives they wanted to be in recovery and we formulated this group of friends and we just used to go to meetings together go for coffee maybe go and do a bit of gym or whatever things that felt normal that felt nice But what I learnt through them was a reparative experience of reconnecting in a way that was honest and open, truthful, congruent, kind. So can you remember where you were and at what time in your life that sort of pivotal moment happened that sort of changed the direction? For me, I think healing or moving forward has been in moments of connection with other people so like there was a prison officer it's that thing about being seen and she used to say to me she said you're like a lovable rogue you know she was just kind to me so her she said some kind words to me the uh drug worker who was kind and wanted to help me the women that I kind of formulated a friendship group, it sounds really crass, but like there's moments of being seen and heard that for me are the pivotal moments until a time where I have those moments and then you start reconnecting with other people and 
now my life today I've been in a relationship for 19 years I have a son you know what I mean all of these things I have a home I've got a mortgage <laughs> do you know what no I mean no one calls you boots anymore no one calls me boots is gone <laughs> boots, boots gone. went a long time ago you know and I created with the help of kind others who I've become today I couldn't have achieved that on my own but it's in connection with others and I can't express that enough, the importance of that. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with me and I'm going to give you a big hug because I know it's a really difficult thing to do. Thank you, you're welcome, thank you. What I love about Tina's story is the fact that she can pinpoint that exact moment where there was a connection made with another human being, with an officer in that particular prison where she felt seen, she felt heard, she was able to unburden herself from some of the traumas she'd suffered in her life, and the change happened. She then felt strong enough to be able to put her life onto a different course, and I think that's so important. When we think about our human services, prisons, mental health services, whatever it may be, Every single member of staff in any institution can take a lot from Tina's story. Next time, as we continue our series on women surviving trauma, Edwina meets Maya. And all I remember is the three years... There was two female prison officers on both sides and I just looked at them and it's sort of like at that moment of my life I think I almost lost the English language the language of my secrets it's sort of like someone explained to me what this all means is it is it it's like those big powerful words coming out of someone so high you've made a decision about my life my house my kids you stripped me off to everything down to my core like my mothering skills to me being a daughter to everything you've made a decision for three years that's Maya's story on the next justice podcast This podcast is brought to you in association with One Small Thing. For more information, go to onesmallthing.org.uk. Look for justice and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Justice is an MIM production. For more information, go to madeinmanchester.tv. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.